but today seems kinda odd No barking from the dog, no small And mama cooked the breakfast with no hog I got my grub on, but didn't dig out Finally got a call from a girl That was Ice Cube with It Was A Good Day Released in February of 1993, Ice Cube wrote the song in the hot summer of 1992, immediately following the L.A. riots. Those riots are the subject of our podcast today, so Ice Cube's retrospective feels like a great way to open the show. It's also one of the greatest rap songs of all time, in my humble opinion. In the song, Ice Cube paints the picture of a great day in his life. There's no smog over L.A., he gets to smoke and drink and see his woman, and the Goodyear blimp announces that he's a pimp. The beat sample is the Isley Brothers. It feels like a balm, like an antidote. It's firmly in the present and puts aside the violence that ripped apart Ice Cube City and in the end, his own neighborhood. Let me throw a hypothetical at you. I want you to imagine what it would take for you to harm your neighbor. What do I mean by that? Well, you might be listening to this podcast at home or in the car on your way to work. Chances are that a non-family member is within 100 yards of you right now. They might be the next-door neighbor, a passerby, or someone you recognize from your daily commute. What would have to happen for you to do violence to that person, to harm someone you barely knew, or someone you didn't know at all? Now, if I was asked that question by a stranger putting a microphone in my face, my first answer would be to try to weasel out of it. I'd say something like, no way, man, I wouldn't hurt anyone. Or I'd say, I'm not that kind of person. But are you? I want you to put sentiment aside for a moment and really ask yourself what has to happen for you to throw out peace and understanding and tolerance. If you're like me, and I feel like I'm normal most of the time, if you feel like me, it would take a lot for me to strike my neighbor. Something like a social breakdown where enough people abandon reason and social standards to force radical acts of violence. That breakdown is the subject of American fantasy. And I'm not above enjoying that scenario in theory. I've consumed a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction and enjoyed most of it. You know the kind I'm talking about. George Romero, The Last of Us, that video game, I Am Legend, Hunger Games, all the the end-of-the-world situations, apocalyptic heroes, that kind of stuff. You also get cultists arising from the ashes of society, urban places made into concrete jungles, zombies, vampires, demons... These dystopian fantasies tease out the wishful thinking in us, like imagining yourself as the grizzled badass ready to take on zombie hordes. But this is real life, and it's uglier than the worst Hollywood can produce. In researching the L.A. riots, the reality of a total social breakdown isn't something I was prepared for. This was a difficult project. It's one tragic story after another. This was a breakdown of mores and decency. The L.A. riots hold none of the romanticism of heroic stories, and the complexity of it stagger me. You have economics and politics layered on top of race and individual personality. My take on the L.A. riots will be focused on a slice of this complex, multi-level conflict. Specifically, I'm going to focus on a story often untold, or told in brief. That's the story of Korean-Americans. This minority bore a sizable amount of the damage in 1992, and I feel that their story hasn't been told in enough detail today. I hesitate to say this, but I came to this story through a meme. Yes, we all know that the best historical events have been memorialized in a meme. I'm not above admitting it. The meme centered around a picture of two Koreans standing on a rooftop with a waist-high parapet. Roof Koreans, the meme named them. 
You might have seen this image before in a newspaper, not in a meme. The two men are defending their neighborhood turf. The man in the background has a cigarette dangling from his mouth and a breached over-under shotgun. He stares over the roof's edge at something in the distance. The man in the foreground holds a scoped Remington 700 hunting rifle at the ready. The wood stock is gleaming. The foreground man's offhand has a cigarette that he's propping between two fingers. His expression is something between annoyed and distracted. The impression you get from the picture is dry, scorching heat and tension. I wanted to know more about that picture and about that meme, and I got more than I bargained for, actually. Events leading up to that moment were really long in the making. Korean Americans possess an American history stretching decades, even centuries. Maybe that's why the story hasn't been examined all that deeply. I found that the LA riots are told as a conflict spinning around the aggressive policing of black communities and the resulting blowback. And don't get me wrong, that's a fine way to tell the story of the LA riots. Herein, we're going to tell some of that story. But at the Tinderbox podcast, we try to do what's hard when what's easy should suffice. I want to tell you the story of this small ethnic minority, Korean Americans, living in a majority minority city, Los Angeles, which was an urban and cultural center with a host of problems. This is the story of a city of immigrants breaking apart. It's the story of neighbors turning on neighbors, and I'll tell it through the stories of the Korean Americans who lived there at the time. I think this story needs to be told well. That's what I'm going to try to do here. I'll be up front and say that my ancestry is wholly European. My mother always describes us as mutts, some mix of French, German, Dutch, maybe some Irish. The Korean American story isn't my story. It isn't my ancestor's story. But I believe in empathy. I believe that anyone can empathize with someone different than themselves given a chance. I will try to do this story justice. And in doing so, raise up the quiet stories of an ethnic American minority that's varied, complex, and full of the hopes and dreams of American life. To do that, I've consulted a lot of sources. Some of them are good, some of them are lacking. I've tried to let the characters tell the story to you straight from their own mouth. It's meant a lot of editing, especially in the third episode, splicing in audio and so on. I'll even throw long quotes at you, because I want you to hear from the primary source when I have it. And we have technology on our side in this podcast, actually. L.A. in 92 was a conflict that happened in the age of colored television and modern recording devices. Many of the people involved in the story are still around today. We'll talk to one of them. So to the greatest extent possible, I want to let the participants speak for themselves. If I was presenting the L.A. riots like most historians do, I'd start with the Rodney King beatdown, which happened March 7th, 1991. We'll get to that. Trust me, we will. But there was another trial that I think made just as much of an impact, especially if you're interested in the Korean-American community. So let's dive into the trial of Latasha Harlins, a black girl 15 years old on the day she died, shot to death in a Korean-American corner store. The trial that followed her death complemented the Rodney King situation in the worst possible way. We'll concern ourselves with these two trials because they act as watershed moments in L.A.'s intricate racial dynamic. The so-called other trial, the trial that wasn't about violence against Rodney King, but instead about the killing of an unarmed 15-year-old girl, will be the long first part of this podcast. You'll get to know the black and Korean-American communities and start to understand why L.A. looks the way it does. In the next episode, we'll build the tinderbox by talking about the year-long descent into tension and the kickoff of the riots. The third episode will be spent in Koreatown, L.A., 
examining in detail the defiant response of the Korean-American community to the riots. And after the riots have quieted, as they all eventually do, we'll talk about the long-term effects of the violence. We'll consider what made people take up arms against their neighbors and how a fractured community can possibly stop this before it happens. And because I'm recording this podcast in the year 2020, a year of intense scrutiny of our justice systems in the United States, I think it's important to be taking a forward-looking perspective. To that end, I've brought in some informants and sources that can help us figure out what we do from here. Because if I've learned anything in 2020, it's that we can so easily slip backward. Almost 30 years from the L.A. riots, we're warming up to the idea that we haven't made nearly the progress we think we have. Let's talk about the last moments in the life of Latasha Harlins. On March 16, 1991, not two weeks after Rodney King was beaten by police, Latasha Harlins wanted a bottle of orange juice. According to the court, Latasha walked into the Empire Liquor Market at 9172 South Figuera Street on Saturday morning, intending to engage in the kind of commerce that happened thousands of times a day in other similar neighborhood stores. Walk into the corner store, pick up an item, pay for it, walk out. Done in a few minutes. You might do this every day yourself. To help you picture what this might look like, liquor stores were one of the fixtures of the neighborhood in South Central L.A., selling not just booze, but everything else your convenience store might carry. Orange juice cost $1.79 in 1991. In pictures I find, Latasha Harlins, often called Tasha, has bangs, keen eyes, and sometimes, if you can get it, a sheepish smile. After making her selection, she placed the bottle of orange juice into her backpack and walked to the counter to pay for it. The top of the bottle peeked out of her pack. The placement of that orange juice bottle in her backpack was important, but I really doubt she knew how important. In her hand, she held $2 bills intending to pay. Like so many liquor stores in South Central L.A., Empire was owned by a Korean family named Du, D-U. That day, Soonja Du, shopkeeper for the day, as well as wife and mother, sat on duty at the cash registers. Soonja, in pictures, has a round face and thick hair cut short. In some pictures, she wears a pair of large glasses. She was about 50 years old at the time, with grown children who often worked the store with her, but not that day. One source I read said that she'd taken a shift from one of her sons. When Latasha approached the counter with the orange juice in her backpack, the girl found the cashier, Soonja Du, hostile. We have a good idea of what happened next for two reasons. First, two witnesses, both children, stood by and testified about it later. When Latasha approached the counter, we also got video of the exchange. There's no audio associated with the CCTV footage of the next few seconds, but the body language says it all. If you look up the video, it's graphic, so please be forewarned. The next few moments of the podcast are graphic, too. The words exchanged were not quite agreed on by the court, but the gist of the fight is clear. Soonja Du accuses Latasha Harlins of stealing the orange juice. This accusation seemed to be based around the orange juice poking out of Latasha's backpack. Latasha denies that she was stealing. Maybe she says that she wanted to pay for it, and like I said before, she had money in her hand when she approached the counter. That's when Du reaches across the counter and grabs Latasha's backpack. In the video, you see the orange juice container gleaming, almost lights up as the two people battle over it. They both struggle against one another. Their mouths are pulled back into snarls. The struggle intensifies. Du is pulling harder, and Latasha Harlins is pulling right back. That's when Tasha begins to punch Du in the face. Four strikes, powerful, 
making Sunja reel. The last strikes pass across the counter as Latasha punches Du backward, backward behind the counter. Du falls back, clutching the backpack, and Latasha is shouting. Sunja Du throws the backpack across the counter in a blur. Retrieving her bag, Latasha puts the orange juice back on the counter. The body language is defensive still, but Latasha turns to leave the store. Sunja Du fiddles with a dark object in her hands as she stands up. Latasha walks away. She doesn't make it more than a few steps. Sunja Du is raising the pistol as she walks. Latasha's back is to Sunja Du when the gun goes off. The shot is not dramatic. It's really a puff of smoke on video, barely a flash. Latasha falls. The video ends. The shot took Latasha Harlins, 15 years old, in the back of the head. According to first responders, the $2 were in Latasha's hand when they found her. The police who arrived on the scene also found Sunja passed out, with her husband trying to revive her by slapping her across the face. There's a few things remarkable about the death of Latasha Harlins at the hands of Sunja Du. One of them is the obvious racial dimension. Harlins was a young black girl in a low-income neighborhood, a neighborhood in a city of severe wealth disparities. Remember, Hollywood is right down the road. Sunja Du was a Korean-American shopkeeper and immigrant whose family owned and operated the store as a minority in a majority black and Hispanic neighborhood. And the Rodney King video had just surfaced just a few days before, a violent event with its own racial overtones. But just as stark as the racial identities of the two women was that both the killer and the victim were women. It's not news, or it shouldn't be news to you, that the vast majority of murders are perpetrated by men. Murder by gender falls along the Pareto distribution, with about 80% of murders done by men, 20% by women. One woman shooting another woman is rare. Having that violence cross racial lines just added to the peculiarity of the case. Plenty of people took note as well. The murder of Latasha Harlins caused a stir in South Central L.A. And now might be a good time to give you an idea of this South Central L.A. community and the city it sits in. Whenever I find myself in a low-income neighborhood, I always ask myself the same question. How did it get to be this way? What happens that makes one area ghetto and one area high income? Is it just that old refrain about real estate? Location, location, location? No. What chain of decisions led to a human society where a group of people live in squalor, violence, and hopelessness, and another doesn't? L.A. is a difficult city to understand by looking at a map. It looks like an urban planner got stoned and went crazy with a sharpie. The vast urban space around Sunja Du's Empire Liquor Market was, in 1991, a series of sprawling, low-income cities integrated into the greater Los Angeles, all tucked into the southern tier of the city. This sprawling ghetto of South Central is, for lack of a better name, penned in. Freeways like the 110 act like cattle chutes for commerce, letting it soar away to other places. The worst neighborhoods in L.A. by per capita income lay spitting distance from these highways. Case in point, the Empire Liquor Store, where this all went down, set about a block away from the infamous 110 freeway known for incredible traffic jams. Then again, it's not just about freeways. There's a million reasons that any city's low-income area becomes tucked in between the worst highways imaginable. I could spend an entire podcast going through the reasons for wealth disparity in L.A., where movie stars live miles or even blocks from ghettos. So let's pick one reason. You might have heard of the concept of redlining. Put simply, redlining was that mad urban planner switching to a red sharpie and dividing Los Angeles into distinct racialized areas. 
These red lines, whether voting precincts or school districts or neighborhoods, were defined politically based on the racial makeup of the people in them. Now, about a year ago, former California Attorney General and Democrat presidential candidate at the time, Kamala Harris, brought up how she'd been part of a busing effort. I actually had to re-record this part of the podcast for various reasons, and in between the time I recorded the first time and the time I recorded the second time, she became a vice presidential candidate, so that tells you something. Busing was used to try and integrate schools across the old red lines from a bygone era, namely the Great Depression. We've also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden, um, I do not believe you are a racist, and I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it's personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful, to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. That little girl was me. Pretty powerful stuff. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that. I'll put uh, an article in the show notes eventually talking about that. But you get the idea. Redlining came to L.A. through an FDR-era private public program called the Homeowners Loan Corporation. In previous podcasts, we've talked about FDR programs like the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, which in that case was a public-private program designed for economic rehabilitation through agriculture and other means. The HOLC, Homeowners Loan Corporation, was similarly created to keep people in their houses using refinancing and loan agreements to stimulate the economy. Think of it as the old-school Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Great idea, right? Here you are, in the 1930s, and the country is reeling from Great Depression. Why not create the circumstances for maintaining widespread home ownership? Here's some audio from the time to tell you all about the New Deal, just to give you some flavor. America, here is a record of it to judge for yourself. City streets, pounded by ever-increasing traffic, are modernized, resurfaced, thousands of blocks which mean huge savings in local tax money. Vital to the communities which they serve are the thousands of miles of highways constructed and improved by the works program. The need for first-class highways grows constantly as the automobile and the motor truck become increasingly important in both city and rural commerce. Here's the thing about a sprawling, data-driven program with immense power. Bad data means bad decisions. The old garbage-in, garbage-out computer programming adage applies here. An algorithm written with bias will spit out biased answers. It's one of the dangers of relying on a quantitative, top-down, technocratic approach to decision-making. The Homeowners Loan Corporation used a grading algorithm. This algorithm scored non-white ethnic areas of L.A. lower than homogenous white areas for the purposes of creditworthiness. HOLC decisions were painted out in, yes, red lines. What seemed like an innocuous government program actually created the foundation for vast racialized ghettos. Without credit, without creditworthiness, these people couldn't refinance, they foreclosed, property values fell, and you know the story. Now, this is all a simplification. I'm not saying that redlining is the only reason that 
poverty exists in LA, nor that it was solely the fault of the HOLC. But today, you can superimpose a heat map of student loan defaults in 2020 over a map of districts graded badly by old HOLC rules. The map from the 50s and the student loan default map are virtually identical. Redlining made housing decisions into destiny. What was the HOLC doing in L.A., though? Why weren't they involved in Boston in that way? Why weren't they in Chicago drawing red lines? Why the investment out west? To get to that answer, let me say what I've said before on this podcast. I am a Yankee. I was born in the Northeast in Massachusetts, and now I live in Pennsylvania. In some of my work, I do historic preservation, and one of the sites I've been working on possibly had George Washington in camp there. Locals shrug about that. Who cares? George Washington was all over Pennsylvania. L.A., in comparison, is a young town. California was still the property of Mexico around the time of the U.S. Civil War. At the turn of the 20th century, the population of New York City was 3.5 million people. The population of L.A., 100,000. L.A. is a city of newcomers. When FDR's administration got involved in L.A., it's because California was the new frontier for urbanization. Probably no single area holding so much of charm and beauty and the good things of life as Southern California. From the beautifully designed Spanish-type station at Los Angeles, in the heart of the City of the Angels, the thrill of Southern California is in the air. In the years since the turn of the century, Los Angeles has grown from a sleepy pueblo to a vast, seething metropolitan city. Fine buildings, huge stores, busy citizens. A city which has grown faster than any other in America in the past decade and which sees a constant day-to-day influx of people from every part of the world. Tasha Harlins and Sunja Du came from two distinct threads making up a racial tapestry in this city. And this was a city haunted by invisible lines and political abandonment. Both of their racial threads involved migration. One was a trans-American migration and the other was a transnational migration. The family histories of these two women are the kind of stories that make up the great story of L.A. In your mind, I want you to think of these two family histories, these two threads, braided together. Their family histories are instrumental in understanding the case, but also understanding L.A. I think too much of the L.A. riot story gets caught up in broad generalizations about people and groups of people. Individual stories are what interest me, especially the stories of these two. First, I want to talk about the story of Latasha Harlins. I'm telling her story first because it gets you the familiar beats of American history. Then I'll tell you Soonja Du's story because of how different America looks from an outside perspective. The Harlins family came from Tuscaloosa, Alabama area, with Ruth Harlins, Latasha's grandmother, being born in 1941. The U.S. struggled through World War II as she was born. She grew up under Jim Crow. And so, she took part in one of the great stories of 20th century America. She became part of an exodus. The exodus of black Americans from the southeast United States to a constellation of destinations across America is often called the Great Migration. That's all in caps. I first heard about the Great Migration back in 2017. My good friend, the Reverend Charles Rice, recommended a book on the subject called The Warmth of Other Suns. My friend Rev died not long after our second conversation about the book. Rest in peace, Rev Rice. Here's how the Great Migration happened, according to that book. Beginning after the Civil War, families freed from bondage sought out new homes. 
And it wasn't just because they'd gained their freedom. For black folks in the South, the South after the Civil War was bleak at best. W.B. Du Bois points out in Black Reconstruction, another excellent book, sorry I'm dropping a lot of books here, that Reconstruction as an enterprise petered out after the war. One story I remember from his book is how Confederate soldiers were sent home without pay after the war ended. Young men, often armed, formed gangs that roamed the countryside in some southern states, exacting terror on residents, black and white. In so many ways, the Union Army, when it came to Reconstruction, had to occupy a foreign land. It reminds me how the U.S. had to deal with the disgruntled remains of a disbanded military in Iraq. Anyway, black families like the Harlans struck out for the Northeast, Midwest, and Western states beyond the Rockies. The Harlans family themselves ended up in St. Louis, Missouri which saw a huge influx of similar migrant families. St. Louis is about 500 miles from Tuscaloosa, but it sits along the Mississippi as well, and so it was a logical place to land if you were leaving the so-called cotton state. If the Harlan's family thought they'd find work in St. Louis, they were disappointed. It was, as described in one book, a city of poor black women. Ruth became a single mother, the father moving on, and had to raise her family on her own. She stuck it out for as long as she could, because by the 1970s, St. Louis had a 33% black unemployment rate. Whatever promises were made by the civil rights era weren't visible to the Harlins family. Latasha Harlins was born at the end of their tenure in St. Louis around 1978. More mouths to feed meant the need for more certainty. So the Harlins family moved again, this time in 1980. Ruth Harlins led her family another 1,800 miles or so to the west over the Rockies in 1980-1981. Rumors had spread across the country of wonderful things happening in California for black people. This vision came from legendary towns started by migrant black families, the stories of successful black entrepreneurs, and of course, the draw of a frontier where freedom was currency. And it probably didn't hurt that L.A.'s weather is legendary. Here's a clip from an old film welcoming you to L.A. in the 1950s, a time when many black communities started to spring up, fueled by the Great Migration. The other of the two most important cities in the state of California is Los Angeles. In population, it is one of the first six cities of the United States. In area, it is one of the largest cities in the world. In addition to being widespread and a city of many fine residences, Los Angeles is the home of several outstanding institutions of higher learning. Seeking the company of other migrants, black families landed in the incorporated cities of L.A., including Compton, Watts, and Willowbrook. Yes, redlined communities. The Harlins family did the same as many and probably felt comfort in seeing other migrants as they got their feet under them. These were people that came from the southeast just like they did, people who might have their accent even. The Harlins family moved to get their feet under them again. L.A. also had its first black mayor at the time, Tom Bradley, who you'll hear all about in this podcast. Ruth Harlins wanted her daughters and granddaughters to attend prestigious colleges in L.A., of which there were many. At the outset of the 1980s, L.A.'s economy was still pretty strong. There were white-collar jobs for the taking for black women. Ruth Harlins worked as a clerk in the Department of Social Services and brought home a decent paycheck. Her daughters found solid jobs, too. L.A. was an industrial town full of factories and machine shops, shipping, commerce, all with plenty of opportunity for families to rely on for income. But as the 1980s wore on, there was an urban malaise leaking in under the doors of opportunity. It came via a number of routes. 
The savings and loan crisis rocked the entire country's financial system. Capital froze up. L.A. then began to deindustrialize. Defense contracts dried up. Factories shuttered. The loss of jobs took the steam out of the city's economy. And the decline of L.A.'s industrial base really mirrored what was happening in the Rust Belt. Manufacturing was going overseas. America's gradual slide out of industrial production didn't stop the migration, though. L.A.'s population shifted from majority white to majority non-white, and the economy stalled, particularly with the arrival of new Hispanic immigrant groups and not enough jobs to go around. L.A. went from being a frontier town to a city of millions, with few of the inhabitants having any ancestry there. Neighborhoods changed. Races had to rub elbows. Another threat arrived in the 1980s, around 1984 or so from what I'm reading, as the Harlans settled into their new life and Latasha turned 10. And that threat was crack cocaine. Let's talk a little bit about this public health nightmare. Cocaine is derived from the leaf of a tropical tree and after extraction has the consistency of a powder. It's snorted or injected. You've seen Scarface, right? Crack cocaine, on the other hand, is a heated mixture of that cocaine powder and baking soda, which creates rock-like clumps a little denser than candle wax. There's a crackling sound as this chemical reaction happens, hence the name. Crack increases the user's uptake of the active ingredient, creating an intense 5-10 to minute high. Compare that with cocaine's high, which is more spread out, less of a dopamine hit. Kind of like a firecracker compared to a sparkler. Because of crack's intensity, it creates dependency. Crack's introduction into American cities had instant and devastating effects. In the book, The Contested Murder of Latasha Harlins, actually a great book about this case, the author has an excellent description of how cities infested with crack felt. Quote, Crack use and addiction were so characteristic of poor black Angelinos in the 1980s that L.A. was known as the crack capital of the world. They produced it, sold it, became addicted to it, killed for it, and were killed by it. Crack was literally created in L.A. End quote. Violence surged. The infamous Crips and Blood gangs formed in the crack era and fought internecine warfare over the drug, including disputes over turf, clients, and product. Government reacted with a heavy hand, as it usually does. For instance, the LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department, brought an armored vehicle, welded a battering ram to the front of it, and ran it into people's houses. The ram stuck out like a steel rhino horn. Officers used the vehicle to drive through reinforced doors of crack houses and raid the interior before drug dealers could flush product down the toilet. It was a strategy of a local police department that nobody had ever seen before. A rap song by Toddy T describes what it's like to live in a neighborhood where armored vehicles filled with armed men might put a hole in your house. In New York, it's coming. In Detroit, it's coming. In LA, it's coming. No, it's here. Sitting here 30, 35 years later, I can say pretty definitively that the crack epidemic and the response was madness. There was no precedent to this. When has a drug so instantly devastated entire communities? I feel like you have to go back to the opium wars in China. The world had changed. Some tried to react, like Karen Bass, a nurse turned community organizer who formed a group called Community Coalition, still around today. She's also still around as a representative and was based around fighting the crack epidemic. I'd love to do a podcast about the history of how plant byproducts have dismantled societies, but I digress. 
living in this maelstrom of redlined urban neighborhoods, a failing industrial sector, radical new forms of gang violence, heavy-handed police response, and rampant drug addiction, was the Harlan's family. Crystal Harlan's, Tasha's mother, lived in L.A. with an abusive husband in a stormy relationship that likely made an impression on young Latasha. Even after Crystal Harlan's got a restraining order, Latasha's father continued to stalk, harass, and beat her. In turn, Crystal's drinking got worse. She began to use cocaine around the time Latasha was eight years old. And then tragedy happened. A bar fight turned ugly. Another black woman shot and killed Crystal Harlan's. Latasha became her grandmother Ruth's ward. According to those who knew Latasha as a girl, she buried her reactions to her mother's violent death. Tasha's childhood became one of anguish, raged, and a closed-off home life. She fought with her siblings, she fought at school, and allegedly she got involved with older men. And I say allegedly because nobody was ever criminally charged. But Latasha struck up an acquaintance with a youth counselor twice her age when she was 15. There were rumors, and he may or may not have been the one to drive her to Empire Liquor Market on the day of her death. But on the other hand, Latasha Harlins had dreams. Following her grandmother's dreams for her family, Tasha wanted to attend law school and become a lawyer. Part of it, she said, came from desiring justice for her mother's murder and wanting to help her own community. And then she was cut down too. Tupac Shakur would later dedicate one of his most famous songs, another incredible, incredible rap song, Keep Your Head Up, to Latasha Harlins. And I told the ladies having babies on their own I know it's kind of rough and you're feeling all alone Daddy's long gone and he left you by your lonesome Thanks the Lord for my kids even if nobody else wants them Cause I think we can make it in fact I'm sure And if you fall stand tall and come back for more Cause ain't nothing worse than when your son wants to know why his daddy don't love him LA's resident demons brought low the Harlan's family Theirs was a pretty typical example of how the world operated in the early 1990s. For many black families, especially in South Central, life presented many, many obstacles. Some of those obstacles, like crack, seemed to spawn out of nowhere and become a devil in their midst. Lives slipped away. But, as I said, black Americans were not the only minority shifting into the melting pot that was Los Angeles in the 20th century. Soonja Du also came from afar. Her journey to L.A. around the same time as the Harlan's family was 6,000 miles long. The story of Soonja Du allows me to switch gears and tell you about the Korean immigrant community in America. Not only where they came from, but how they came here and why. And before I get into this, a note on pronunciation. I have done my best here. And I apologize for when I inevitably mangle the Korean pronunciation of some words. I had some help, thanks to Abby and Byung. I appreciate your help, and I am sorry that I probably screwed it up anyway. Born in 1941, the same year as Ruth Harlan's, Latasha's grandma, Soonja Du came of age in North Chungcheon Province in Korea, which sits right in the center of present-day South Korea. The province was, at the time, agricultural growing ginseng, tobacco, rice, and barley in the shadow of local mountain ranges. Looking at the landscape, the place she grew up was stunning. Mountains reached down to lush river valleys, and in the winter, the place is blanketed with snow. And really, it reminds me of where I am in Pennsylvania. But for as beautiful as her homeland was, Soon Ja Du came of age in a time of war. 
Though the present situation is dangerous, we do not believe that war is inevitable. There is no conflict between the legitimate interests of the free world and those of the Soviet Union that cannot be settled by peaceful means. We will continue to take every honorable step we can to avoid general war, but we will not engage in appeasement. The world learned from Munich that security cannot be bought by appeasement. Having talked to the nation, President Truman signs the emergency proclamation, which means a tightening of the belt, higher taxes, and price and wage fixing. An America hoping for the best and preparing for the worst. The Korean War is often called America's Forgotten War. What I knew about the Korean War as a kid came from old, not really funny reruns of the show MASH. And I guess because it's the Forgotten War, let me do a quick recap of the Korean War. As World War II wound down, the Japanese occupation of Korea ended. The Japanese occupation of Korea, like other Japanese occupations like China, involved years and years of brutality. The Japanese put the Koreans under the boot heel of their empire and they ground them down. The Japanese crushed Korean culture, language, and expression. But sometimes, as happens in history, the Japanese may have actually strengthened the resolve of the Korean people. In kind of a strange turn of events, the Kim Dynasty of North Korea, led as of recording time by Kim Jong-un, was founded by a man who led a resistance against Japanese occupation. In my opinion, the country of North Korea is an insular totalitarian dictatorship because of an overwhelming cultural memory of outside interference. As you'll learn in this podcast, South Korea, while they had less of an extreme reaction to it, I suppose you could say, retained a real patriotism and a strength of character through all of this. So then what happened after Japan lost Korea in World War II? America took on South Korea, Russia took on North Korea, and they drew the dividing line at the 38th parallel. Nobody expected peace to last long, least of all the Korean people. When a civil war broke out in 1950, each side had a superpower in its corner. The communist North relied on Russia and China, and the South counted on Western powers, but really the capitalist fortress of the United States. Northern Chungcheon province, where Soon Jadu grew up, saw massacres, political upheaval, economic depression, and the usual misery that comes along with war. Soon Ja was a child during all of this. In Korea, United Nations troops push on in the cautious advance against the communists. An advance whose purpose, General Ridgway states, is not to seize ground, but to wipe out the enemy. The Chinese Red Army, fighting desperately in small isolated stands, prefers to give ground on wider fronts rather than join battle. And it's up to the infantry to clear out the pockets of die-hard communists. Soon Ja was not a peasant. She didn't need to remain on the farm. Her parents were of the professional managerial class, and soon she was sent to Seoul to study literature. You get the idea that her parents sent her south to get her out of the parts of the country where the fighting was the fiercest. After the war ended, she married Hyung Ki Do, also known as Billy, the son of a construction company owner. Soon Ja didn't have to work outside of the house once she became a mother because Billy, her husband, moved up in the family business. Billy did a stint in the military, which was required for all Korean men, and in general, I feel like they lived comfortably. 
However, South Korea struggled economically. The imposition of American occupation grated on some Koreans. Sensing better opportunities abroad, many well-off families looked to move to America. For simplicity's sake, I think it's best to treat Korean immigration to the United States as an antebellum and postbellum phenomenon, pre-war, post-war. So let's start with the old way. In the 200 years prior to the Korean War, Koreans had immigrated across the Pacific to the United States at a trickling pace. In the beginning, they were laborers looking for work. Often, those men were treated little better than slaves. They faced the same legalized discrimination in the 19th and 20th century as blacks, including severe discrimination in employment and religious expression. Much of early emigration was agricultural. Demand was such that cheap Asian labor could be used on farms. That trickle sped up to America. The flow of Koreans and others of Asian descent became so great that in 1924, Congress passed the Oriental Exclusion Act, which shut off all Asian immigration. Koreans became lumped in with Chinese and Japanese immigrants under this American law, which locked down the ports of entry to people that looked like them. That cut immigrants off from their homelands with no chance to bring in any family at all. Within two decades of the Oriental Exclusion Act, Japanese Americans were thrown into concentration camps. This was the World War II policy of, oh, look at that. Wow, who knew? FDR, the guy who created the HOLC. Oh, I'm seeing a pattern here. I swear, the longer I do this, the more I learn. So the thrust of this antebellum period of Korean immigration was that while Korean Americans have lived in America for centuries, it happened in fits and starts and for some periods not at all, and it was fairly miserable. Postbellum life changed the dynamic, though. After the war, the Dews watched other families travel to South Korea's new tight ally, best superpower friend, the United States. Because what you need to remember is that, for all intents and purposes, South Korea is a colony of post-World War II American hegemony. While South Korea retains a lot of control over its own politics in 2020, it is inundated with American soldiers at all times. It is a country under occupation. That gives South Korea benefits, but at a price. In my Outfluenza podcast, I talked about how America exported Coca-Cola both as a patriotic concept and as a sugary drink during World War II. Korea got its dose of American capitalism from close contact with its occupying army. TV broadcasts from U.S. military base beamed into Korean homes over the airwaves, where Koreans could watch the latest in U.S. television shows. American cuisine seeped out of bases, and probably the most importantly, American soldiers took home Korean wives, and the couples were eventually allowed to emigrate back to the United States. Most notably, the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act overturned the 1924 Oriental Exclusion Act and threw open the ports of entry to Korean immigration. Here's Lyndon Johnson giving a speech on the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act over at Ellis Island in New York. Listen to how far he goes to downplay the passage of the bill. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. It does not affect the lives of millions. It will not reshape the structure of our daily lives or really add importantly to either our wealth or our power. Yet it is still one of the most important acts of this Congress and of this administration. 
Contrary to what Johnson is saying here, the Immigration and Nationality Act absolutely made a difference in the lives of immigrant groups like Korean Americans. It not only meant that there was a chance for Koreans to come over to the United States, but family reunification provisions for spouses of U.S. soldiers made it easy to bring the entire family over to America. Many Korean American families settled in L.A., a West Coast city, and in time turned the city into the epicenter for Korean American life. By 1991, when Soon Ja Du shot Latasha Harlins, between 800,000 and a million Korean Americans lived in the United States, with more than two thirds of them living in LA. But it all was a paradise when Korean Americans arrived. The new set of Korean immigrants had real divisions with the Korean Americans that had come before them. But then, no racial group is ever unified in philosophy or practice. I'm simplifying extremely complex relationships here, but for instance, it's reported that later Korean immigrants who received education in Seoul or worked in high-powered jobs, people like Billy and Soonja do, often looked down on those who had ancestors in the United States, who were descended from those agricultural laboring classes in the early 20th century. Kind of strange, right? But we're talking about human beings and all of our quirks here. Another divide. Many of those same educated Korean Americans like the Dews looked down on the illegal Korean immigrants who had arrived afterward via Saigon, Vietnam, many of whom were destitute or even homeless. On the flip side, blue-collar Korean immigrants complained about the perception of the nouveau-riche Korean imports who drove around flaunting their wealth in new Mercedes-Benz. Class distinction runs deep in humanity's psyche, I think, even when you're thousands of miles from where you were born. Even among the diaspora, old habits died hard. It seems from the research that the batch of immigrants who arrived in the U.S. after the passage of the 1965 Act were those well-educated folks. They'd been executives, physicians, business owners like Billy Do. They expected to be able to move to the United States and immediately make a living. Some Koreans making the move wanted to impress people back home with their ability to succeed abroad. Others saw Korean life as too limiting and wanted to break out of, for instance, the tight social expectations of family and marriage. I imagine that if you took a survey of 100 Koreans leaving Korea, you'd find 100 different reasons for them leaving. But you'd also find a common desire in a vague but gleaming notion of success. You have to admit, for its flaws, America has pretty amazing marketing, and Koreans were getting a lot of that marketing. Imagine if your experience of America was I Love Lucy, Johnny Carson, and Coca-Cola. The Dew family arrived in the U.S. in 1976, the same year Tasha Harlins was born. And I get the sense that the Dew family expected more. They were late in the migration, stepping into the Southern California Korean-American community as it ballooned in size. Koreatown was the epicenter. It was located in central L.A., so north of the south-central regions we've talked about before. If the Dews were looking for the familiar, they found it there. Signboards in Korean script, men drinking tea, mini malls, swap meets. Swap meets, swap meets. They seem to be what out here in Yankee country we call flea markets. And they were a common Korean institution dealing in secondhand good and social capital. Koreatown, even if it was the center of Korean-American experience in L.A., was still a multi-ethnic town. One academic work on Korean-American life called Blue Dreams documents how in 1992, a single street might have a Korean herbal medicine shop, a Salvadoran restaurant, a Korean dentistry office advertising that they speak Spanish, and a tofu stew eatery. Community figures of Koreatown like Haiduk Lee saw Chinatown in Little Tokyo and wanted to create a place for Koreans in L.A., 
one just as vibrant, just as important to cultural identity. But at the same time, Koreatown faced all the rising crime problems of the rest of Los Angeles. The transition to American life was probably harshest on Soonja. Her husband, Billy, did not speak English well. This barred him from managerial jobs he'd come to expect. He instead got a job as a repairman at a radio shack. This had to be a shock to the family. Well, a shock on top of a shock. Moving into a foreign land is hard enough as it is. Not speaking the language complicates things, and then giving up your class position adds another level to your anxiety. Friends reported that Soonja internalized a lot of the stress during this period. The dues scraped by, they saved their money, and in 1981, the year that the Harlans moved to L.A., they opened a convenience store in the San Fernando Valley. Like many Koreans, from what I can tell, the dues moved away from the hyper-urbanized bustle of Koreatown. But it meant that the dues were still scraping by, and now Soonja had to work. She had to sit at the register, help stock items, assist in shop logistics. Culturally, this was a huge adjustment. In Korea, Soonja could have expected to never work again after marriage and instead take care of her children. Now she had to labor alongside her husband. It would be a humiliation to write back home to tell people about what she did every day. So I wonder if the Du family really became isolated from their friends back home. Slowly, through the years, the Dews started to build a convenience store empire. Like many Korean Americans, they saw opportunity in convenience stores in low-income areas. Billy followed the trends and bought up ailing properties, adding to the store in the valley with one in Valencia, and finally picking up the South Central property, soon to become the Empire Liquor Market in 1989. So why did Koreans take up convenience stores in these low-income neighborhoods? Didn't they see the crack cocaine epidemic? Didn't they see the police brutality, the economic devastation? Well, this is a central question, because it gets deep into Korean and Asian American stereotyping, business practices, and eventually the explosion of violence in 92. A sort of hazy myth exists of the Korean-American entrepreneur. It lines up nicely with the American desire to see the noble small business owner succeed. Small business owners and their success is a sort of legendary thing in America. Heck, my wife's Hallmark movies are almost always about struggling entrepreneurs trying to succeed in romance and business. This idea of Korean-American and really Asian and Pacific Islander Americans as a whole is that they are a model minority pursuing entrepreneurialism. This model minority concept is something we're going to run into again and again in this podcast. The problem is that the reasons for entering the American form of entrepreneurship didn't follow a rags-to-riches narrative. It's not just a matter of building yourself up. Some of these new Americans wanted economic independence, Others followed in the footsteps of a family member. Many just found that finding a job in their previous occupation was impossible and had to move on. Owning a store could be managed without a significant grasp of the language. Goods come in, goods go out. You get the idea. When you look at the Du family, you can almost say they went into owning a retail business not out of choice, but out of desperation. This supposed Asian-American model minority owned small businesses not because they believed in the American dream, but because they had no other path to a sustainable household income. I just want you to take away the idea that entrepreneurship wasn't necessarily something chosen out of a suite of other options. Because if the Du family thought that they'd gain financial security from that liquor store, it wouldn't come without stress and trouble. To top it all off, the Dews didn't reap the profit they'd hoped for. 
Running a retail business is difficult in the best of times. The deindustrialized shell of LA was not at its best from the 70s onward. Shop owners had to work seven days a week, rely on their families to work seven days a week to save on labor costs, and cut every expense to the bone to survive. My carpenter actually said it best. He said, I own my own business. That means I have to work seven days a week, but I get to pick which seven. If Korean Americans built wealth, they built it slowly. In Korean, there's a phrase that kind of explains some of this attitude. I'll probably butcher it, but here goes. Hemian tenda. The maxim, translated, reads, If you try, you will succeed. This phrase is printed on school trophies, on certificates of achievement, and otherwise works its way into the consciousness that way. And if it sounds like the American dream to you, working hard will bring its just rewards, you're, you're right. And maybe this had something to do with the entrepreneurship that happened among Korean Americans. At the same time, Koreans have a strong sense of national identity, somewhat born out of the occupation of their homeland that I mentioned before. I believe you say this, Koyang Ushik, or homeland consciousness. My interpretation of this is that there are ties we feel from nationality that interact with those close ties of family, business, and friendship. You might remember from the Counted as Cast series, I talked about this concept of group cohesion. I see it as the same concept, a national spirit of sorts. That book I mentioned before, Blue Dreams, well, it identifies a problem that Korean Americans had when they took these two concepts, these concepts instilled in them from a young age, if you try and you will succeed in homeland consciousness, stuck them in a new American consciousness, and then took one of them away. Namely, that's the Korean-American national consciousness being splintered because they became Americans. They lived in a far-off land, still keeping in touch with the homeland in many cases, but year after year getting deeper and deeper into American life. Some Koreans traveled back to the homeland, some refused to travel back. Money crossed the Pacific from relatives, but it often did not. Some Koreans back in the old country described how Koreatown was, in a lot of ways, a suburb of Seoul. In fact, the relationship between South Korea and Koreatown went deep enough that I read a rumor among Korean Americans that the KCIA, yes, the Korean CIA, purposely boosted some immigrants in their trip to America. Interesting stuff. But the fact of the matter is, is that as years wore on, and then decades, Korean Americans became more and more estranged from the homeland. As the theory goes, as Korean Americans lost homeland consciousness, they doubled down on the if-you-try-you-will-succeed concept, or in American terms, the yanking up of bootstraps. They focused in on the world of work. The thesis here is that scholars of Korean-American life think that as national identity faded, Korean immigrants to America focused in on what they could control, namely their work. They poured everything into their work, their energy, their heart, their soul. For the dues, hard work was the path forward but that work was also their daily torment. The dues, whether by chance or a lack of understanding, or maybe just accident, had opened shop in a community ripped to shreds by drug addiction and gang violence. The South Central store was rife with crime. Daily shoplifting put the Dew family on edge constantly. They had three armed robberies by the time the incident with Latasha Harlins happened. The immediate neighborhood had a daily rotation of assaults, rapes, and murders. The Dews were immersed in difference. And Soonja Du's statements and depositions showed that she held really negative attitudes towards her black patrons. 
She described herself as afraid of blacks and not respecting them. On the flip side, oral histories and surveys of race relations between black Americans and Asian Americans had black community members complaining about the disrespectful, dishonest, and sometimes violent treatment they received from Korean shop owners. Like many early generation immigrants, Korean owners were often insular, and they just didn't hire from the community. In many instances, they didn't have the English to interact with patrons above the simple transactional level. On the other hand, black communities faced everyday crime among their residents that engendered distrust by Korean Americans. You can see that there's a lot of tension building up here. The dues coming from Korea had come from a homogenous population as well. Most, if not all, the black people they'd come across in Korea were U.S. soldiers. And not to put a too fine a point on it, Korea itself suffered from racial animus against dark-skinned people, similar to the racial animus found in their new nation. To make matters worse, an event before the shooting of Latasha Harlins gave the dues a bad name. In 1990, a drive-by shooting occurred right outside the store. Passerby ran into the market for protection. Billy Dew forced everyone out of the store in response. One of the people who was seeking shelter was shot and killed. The community blamed the Dews for their heartlessness. It got worse. Not long before the shooting incident that landed Soonja Dew in court, the Main Street Crips, a local gang, made threats against the Dews' oldest son. The son accused a Crip of stealing, and then the gang threatened to kill Soonja Dew's son and the entire family. Mr. Dew put the store on sale and tried to meet with the gang members, but the situation simmered. Billy Dew had more than the 38 caliber pistol in the shop, which he kept under the counter. He had other pistols and even an M1 carbine. You can feel the tension, right? You can feel that this is a community about to explode. Latasha Harlins, looking for orange juice, walked into an already troubled situation. Battle lines were drawn as the media publicized the killing of Latasha Harlins. I'll read you some headlines drawn from the LA Times reporting during that period. Slain girl with not stealing juice, police say. And a senseless and tragic killing. New tension for Korean-American and African-American communities. And here's one more. Racial tensions blamed in girl's death. Prolonged distrust, insults, and violence between the Korean store owners and their black neighbors are cited by both sides. As the media zeroed in on the obvious that you had a young woman being killed by an older woman, a Korean-American woman killing a black American woman, and supposedly a shoplifting incident, which really wasn't shoplifting, I think the real reason that any of this really blew up was the existence of a video. As grainy as it was, the release of the security camera footage elevated the case. Violence happens every day. It happened every day in South Central L.A. A clear video recording of violence with good lighting and decent angles to show the action, does not happen every day. In essence, this was the story with the Rodney King video as well, which we'll talk about more later. The Tasha Harlins video didn't depict anything new, per se. It depicted reality on the ground. It showed the brutality of interactions between black and Korean Americans in South Central and exposed the cracks in one of America's most diverse cities. National groups like the NAACP and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and local groups like the L.A.-based Brotherhood Crusade mustered for a legal fight against the Dews. They assisted the Harlins family in the immediate term, but also began to bring in black community leadership and local politicians. They called for a community economic development fund that would buy out any businesses operating in black neighborhoods that didn't respect and hire black folks in those areas. They organized a boycott of the empire market and organized street marches. 
Not all, but many said that Korean-American-owned businesses were interlopers in the community. Meanwhile, the paucity of Korean-American community organizing was obvious. While a few groups existed, they had none of the cachet or the clout of similar black American groups. The reasons for the lack of organization, well, they were obvious. Language barriers, lack of political representation, a lot of them being newcomers. Korean Americans did not have a strong national organization to represent them as a minority in L.A. In contrast, the black community had many groups working the various legal angles, some decades old. Some of them from the civil rights era, of course. Also, many Korean-American businesses had something to lose from a boycott, so other Korean shop owners did not step up for the dues. For instance, the Korean-American Grocers Association offered a set of heartfelt thoughts for the Harlins family, said that it was an isolated incident, and stated that, quote, It is our sincere hope that this event is treated as a dispute between a retail store owner and a customer, and that this event is not looked on as a racial one or exploited for cynical political reasons, end quote. The Grocers Association made no mention of the Dew family, nor do I gather that a lot of money was coming to the Dew family for their legal defense. Billy Dew shuttered his store, and the protests outside went on. It's worth saying that there were some attempts to bridge the divide. A small group called the Black Korean Alliance tried to find ways to defuse tensions. The Black Korean Christian Coalition joined them in hosting events trying to bridge the divide. But the anger was stronger. In May, less than two months after Latasha's death, a black man robbing a liquor store shot dead two recent Korean immigrants. According to eyewitnesses, they had complied with his demands, but he still gunned them down. Ten days later, a black man attempted to rob a convenience store after attempting to pay for his items with a gold chain. He got into a scuffle with the owner and was shot five times. Korean Americans saw it as more examples of the long string of homicides of Korean shop owners. Black residents saw it as more of the same violence against their community. You'd think that this kind of mounting violence plus the Rodney King case going on in the background would have elicited constructive comment from City Hall, you know, the mayor, the people, people in charge. Mayor Tom Bradley was in his fifth term as L.A. mayor. The first and so far the only black mayor of L.A., Bradley had an interesting distinction as a campaigner. He'd taken a lot of money during his campaign from Korean Americans. They'd in fact donated cash to his failed campaign for governor in 86. In other words, Mayor Bradley felt beholden to Korean Americans on some level. And then, on the other hand, black Angelinos were a huge constituency for him. So in one of those great examples of trying to please everyone while pleasing no one, here's his statement about the slaying of Latasha Harlins. Quote, I share the sorrow and distress expressed by leaders in both the African-American and Korean-American communities in response to the tragic murder, but I am deeply concerned about the potential for this incident to divide our city along ethnic lines. Aggressive efforts must be undertaken in order to establish and maintain relationships based upon mutual respect and understanding. End quote. All right, I have to do something here. I have to make my bias clear. I need to do this before I get too far into this. Look, I have a lot of sympathy for both Latasha Harlins and for Soonja Du. I have little sympathy for political figures like Mayor Bradley, and as you'll find out later, Daryl Gates, the chief of police. And here's a case in point. This statement from the mayor's office is exhibit number one for me. Listen to this line again. Quote, aggressive efforts must be undertaken, end quote. There's a being verb in there, must be undertaken, passive voice. Remember what your high school English teacher said about being verbs? You don't use them. 
You don't use them because they don't signify action. In fact, I remember I had a teacher who would fail you if you used one being verb. Yeah, that's a great incentive. Mayor Bradley, who is going to take aggressive efforts? Why didn't your office put someone in charge of response? Everyone else saw through his statement too, both the black community and the Korean American community. They likely felt no help would come to them from City Hall, and I think they were right. The trial, the people of Los Angeles versus due, began quickly. Soon Ja, with her face swollen by the beating, first appeared in court on March 19, 1991. The Dew family struggled with their legal team until they landed an attorney named Charles Earl Lloyd, a highly successful black lawyer whose race was obviously a factor in the decision to bring him on. The case promised to be anything but simple, though. The DA argued that Soon Ja was a flight risk, but the judge refused to deny bail. The Dew's lawyers argued that the case be moved from South Central L.A., which eventually happened, putting it in downtown Los Angeles to deal with, quote, a great deal of pressure from the local community in the Compton area on the witness, the jury, and the court staff, end quote. The Harlan's family publicly criticized this decision, but the judge had spoken. The case began on September 30th, 1991, and exactly none of the pressure had abated. But the case began to fall out of the public eye because of another proceeding happening on the other side of the country. That was the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings in D.C. where Anita Hill, a black woman, and her accusations of sexual misconduct against a black man, the judge in question, had become central to Thomas's Senate confirmation process. The Harlan's family likely wanted the public eye on their case, but it slipped away. Professor, do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth to help you, God? I do. Thank you. Professor Hill, please uh, make whatever statement you would wish to make to the committee. Mr. Chair? Excuse me, friend. I instruct the officers, do not let anyone in or out of that door while Professor Hill is making her statement. The voice you're hearing during the swearing-in of Anita Hill is, of course, Senator, then-Senator, Joe Biden. The judge presiding over the People v. Due case was Joyce A. Carlin, a Jewish woman whose father was a Hollywood executive. She was 40 years old at the time of the trial, with curly blonde hair that dropped down past her shoulders onto her dark robe. I believe her seat at the People v. Due case was her first case in Superior Court after being appointed by the governor. Talk about a trial by fire. Joyce Carlin had spent her entire career getting to the Superior Court and faced this crazy case with huge racial and political implications right from the get-go. So here we have a Jewish woman from an elite Hollywood family presiding over the fate of a Korean-American immigrant who killed a black American minor. The female cast of characters in this case makes it interesting by itself, let alone that it was a seminal moment in race relations. I could probably spend an entire podcast just talking about the proceedings of the trial, but I'm not going to do that. I want to get into the central arguments and evidence involved and summarize closing arguments of the two legal teams. Hopefully that'll summarize it for you. Again, there's a great book out there, The Contested Murder of Latasha Harlins. Can't recommend it enough. It's a great book. Great book. It has its bias, but I I still would recommend it. Central to this case was the philosophy of self-defense. Under California law, a shopkeeper has the legal right to self-defense, but who was the aggressor? Who defended themselves? Latasha, according to the police responding to the scene, had no intention of stealing the orange juice. However, Latasha had struck Soonja Du in the face multiple times, even reaching across the counter to hit her. 
Did Soonjaw have the right to investigate the backpack? Did she have a right to brandish a weapon at all, let alone fire it? Was Soonjaw in moral danger? Yeah, you see the problem. The district attorney told the jury that they needed to try Soonjaw Du under second-degree murder. Lesser charges weren't appropriate, came the argument. If you've watched enough Law & Order episodes, you know that first-degree murder is the most heinous and pre-planned of the murder charges, with second-degree being much more of a crime of passion. In California law, another category exists called voluntary manslaughter, often called third-degree murder in other states. And that's where a killing is without intent, but it has elements of recklessness. It was possible for the jury to opt for lesser charges if they didn't feel Soonja Du had criminal intent interactions. Integral to this argument over Soonja's intent was the LAPD's ballistic lab findings. The pistol used in the crime, that 38, had a modified hair trigger. That meant that the gun could go off with much less pressure applied to the trigger than normal. And what they found was it might have even had a defective trigger that caused the gun to discharge from rough handling. Soonja's defense team argued that she hadn't meant to fire, but that the gun had gone off in her hands. The prosecution argued that Soonja didn't have her story straight, because in testimony, she said she didn't know how to fire a gun and learned it from Hollywood movies, that is, by pulling the trigger, but then later recanted and said that she didn't know how the trigger mechanism was used to fire a gun. The prosecution further argued that Latasha Harlins was shot in the back of the head as she left the store, and that she was no longer an imminent threat to Soonja Du. The defense argued that Soonja knew that the gun was there, but not how to operate it, at least not on any advanced level. Further, they said that Soonja was under immense pressure due to threats to her family, her unfamiliarity with English, her defective gun, her frailty next to the 15-year-old Latasha, the punches to her face, and you get the idea. Two outstanding questions confronted the jury as they went to deliberate. Did Soonja have the right to grab Latasha's backpack in the first place? And did the gun go off accidentally? For the next three days, the jury deliberated on the case. When the jury returned, they handed down a guilty verdict of voluntary manslaughter for Soonja Du, with a maximum sentence of 16 years. The jury recommended the full sentence. But as you probably know, the sentence is not delivered by the jury, but by the judge. The court adjourned, and the case would resume in November of 1991, with the sentencing done by Joyce Carlin. In between the trial and the sentencing, both teams jockeyed for a superior legal position. The defense's team's actions, in retrospect, ended up swaying the sentencing their way. Soonja Du underwent a psychiatric examination. Soonja, the report said, was remorseful and unlikely to repeat her crime. A sentence of probation was adequate. Soonja said that she believed Latasha Harlins had a gun in her backpack, which is why she had grabbed it. The Dews family church also sent countless letters of support to Judge Carlin. Korean-American churches were major pillars in these new communities and these diaspora communities in L.A., and the outpouring went far. On the flip side, the Harlins family and the Coalition of Black Community Groups hit the streets, holding rallies and issuing petitions to the judge's office. But in the day-to-day -day life of south-central L.A., violence continued. On October 26th, two black men robbed a Korean-owned convenience store and shot a nine-year-old girl in the chest, seemingly out of malice instead of accident. On October 30th, a 33-year-old Korean-American man was shot and killed in his beauty supply store as it was robbed. The next morning, a Korean-owned liquor store was burned to the ground. The sentencing day arrived November 15, 1991, and many, many people waited outside the courthouse for word. 
On a dry, breezy day for L.A., the sentence came down. Judge Carlin's decision started with definitive answers to questions. Let me quote her. Quote, Does society need Mrs. Due to be incarcerated in order to be protected? I think not. Is the defendant a danger to society? I think not. Is state prison needed in order to encourage the defendant to lead a law-abiding life or isolate her so that she cannot commit her crimes? I think not. Is state prison needed to punish Mrs. Due? Perhaps. End quote. Joyce Carlin, newly minted Superior Court judge, issued one of her first sentences from that bench, and probably the most momentous one she'd ever issue. Soon Jadu would receive a suspended 10-year term, 5 years probation, 400 hours of community service, a $500 fine, and the cost of Latasha Harlan's funeral and medical expenses. The judge said further, quote, Did Mrs. Dew react inappropriately? Absolutely. But was that reaction understandable? I think it was, end quote. Carlin added, quote, This is not a time for revenge. And no matter what sentence this court imposes, Mrs. Dew will be punished every day for the rest of her life, end quote. At this point, you might be thinking, wow, this is not going to help race relations in L.A. But Judge Carlin had a different view of the decision. Quote, Latasha Harlins' death should be remembered as a catalyst that must force members of the African-American and Korean communities to confront an intolerable situation by the creation of solutions. And by creating solutions, hopefully a better understanding and acceptance can result so that similar tragedies will never be repeated, end quote. One thing to note here, she used the word African-American and Korean communities. I think it's interesting she called it the Korean community and not the Korean-American community. But anyway, might be mincing words there, but it's interesting that perception of Koreans as these newcomers. But as you can imagine, the reaction was immediate to this statement. The media ran to the Harlins family, capturing the reaction the moment that came through. Quotes from various groups surrounding the Harlins family at this time include, quote, Soon Ja Du got away with murder, end quote, and, quote, The system stinks, there is no justice, end quote. Rally after rally involved megaphones and anger, 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 anger. For the Harlan's contingent, this was a clear injustice and had a lot of emotion involved. The press found a new angle to exploit a few days later. I don't know if I want to use the word exploit, but I really do feel that it wasn't productive in any case. This was the case of Korean immigrant Brendan Sheen. On November 20th, five days after the sentencing of Soon Ja, Brendan was given 30 days in the county jail for abusing his eight-month-old Cocker Spaniel. An op-ed appeared in the L.A. Sentinel decrying the contrast between these two sentences. On the one hand, you had the killer of a young black girl served no time at all, and on the other hand, a dog beater got 30 days. Violence continued, but I think it was spreading. A store in Koreatown came under attack. Not long after the sentencing, two men broke into the Superior Liquor Store in Koreatown and shot dead the 46-year-old owner. Other attacks were going down. Carlin's court had a picket line around her for days. Police had to be dispatched to her home in order to break up protesters that found her home address. Judge Carlin's husband was accused of running over the foot of one of those protesters. But even while the LAPD defended Judge Carlin's home, the district attorney's office was proceeding to ruin her career. They took her off the bench for capital crimes, for instance. Opponents tried many ways to get her off the bench entirely, running huge campaigns. Judge Carlin would hold on to her L.A. Superior Court's judgeship in the end, surviving a recall effort, 
and she would get onto the bench of the California Supreme Court, but she wouldn't remain there for long. She would end up stepping back from the bench later and into a sort of a quasi-retirement. Her career wasn't the only victim of the contested case of Latasha Harlan's. As I understand it, Charles Earl Lloyd, the Dews lawyer, was never forgiven for his involvement in the case and lost his practice as well. I suppose the question on your mind is, what was the judge thinking? Did Soon Jadu deserve no jail time? And how could she have thought a light sentence would actually help race relations? Honestly, and maybe I'm being flippant here, the wording of Carlin's decision reminds me of an infamous scene from A Christmas Story. In this scene, the teacher tries to guilt Ralphie and his friends for double-daring another friend to lick a metal pole in the middle of cold December. Now, I know that some of you put Fleck up to this, but he has refused to say who. But those who did it know their blame. And I'm sure that the guilt you feel is far worse than any punishment you might receive. In this case, Carlin seemed to play that same preachy teacher, settling a dispute through guilt. But this wasn't injury, this was death. And it felt cheap to people. The resentment bubbled like a simmering stew. Back in 91 and 92, as this all went down, a young civil rights attorney paid attention. Her name was Angela O. That's O-H, Oscar Hotel. And she'll be a recurring character in our story. At the time of the Harlan's case, Angela had already started to make a name for herself at age 36. She'd been active in the Korean American Bar Association, represented Koreans in court, and generally had her finger on the pulse of Korean America. That's why I think of her as a kind of informant for this podcast. I want Angela O oh to be someone we return to again and again. We even got to talk to her in real time in 2020. You can find that full interview elsewhere in our archives, and we'll put some clips in the podcast as well and do some analysis. Later, Angela O oh would go on to serve in the Clinton administration on the President's Initiative on Race, and spent the intervening years between the riots and today acting as a leader in race relations. She also got ordained as a Zen Buddhist priest, something we'll cover in our last episode when we're talking about the emotions of this period. But anyway, here she is in March 2000 in a talk called Reorienting Asian America. In this segment, she directly addressed why she thinks Carlin might have ruled the way she did. And the public, of course, had had it because before Rodney King, there had been a case called People v. Sunjadu where a young African-American teenager named Latasha Harlins had been shot. And the defendant in that case was Korean. And the judge, who was a brand new judge on the bench and did not have the benefit of the wisdom or experience of her colleagues on that bench, went ahead and did what she thought was right, which was grant probation to an individual who she thought was not a risk for committing the same kind of offense against in the future. Me as a defense lawyer in the criminal arena, I thought it was a very compassionate sentence. The rest of the city was really angry, really angry. But they were going to wait to see what happened in the Rodney King case because there, of course, justice would be delivered. Well, we all know what happened on April 29th, 1992. To me, that inexperience explanation actually has some heft. Joyce Carlin really did believe that an empathetic sentence would be adequate even if she came off sounding a little preachy. And I don't think her reasoning was unsound. I haven't tracked down Soon Ja Du, and I don't intend to do so. 
but she's in her late 70s today in 2020, and as far as I can tell, if she's still around, has not committed another crime since. That's what makes the Latasha Carlin's case so difficult. It challenges you to ask about the nature of self-defense and the purpose of prison time. But given that this is the Tinderbox podcast where bedlam and pandemonium is our subject area, I think you've already assumed that the sentence would not, as Joyce Carlin hoped, act as a salve for race relations. It would do the opposite, in fact, and the video would be instrumental in inflaming tensions as the riots worsened. The world would look back on Carlin's decision as a mistake, even if she had the best of intentions. As the murder of Latasha Harlins became history, the case that bookended the Latasha Harlins case started to heat up, which of course was the case of Rodney King. We'll talk through the Rodney King case in the next episode, and importantly for our understanding of Korean American communities during this riot, lay out the fearsome situation growing in L.A., You'll hear about the strained relations between Mayor Tom Bradley and Police Chief Daryl Gates and the crippling economic recession underway. And not too long, the L.A. riots of 92 are going to kick off. It's going to change Korean-American life in the United States forever. And thanks for listening so far. We've hit a milestone at Tinderbox as I recorded this episode. We have over a thousand listens, a thousand ears glued to their speakers. It's great to know people out there are interested in what we're discussing. So if you're new, thank you. If you've been with me since the beginning, thanks again. Do you want to discuss a podcast episode or send me a comment? You can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash tinderboxpodcast, and leave me a comment. You can also go to soundcloud.com slash tinderboxcomment, I think. I think I got that right. And you can also comment on there. Please leave us a review. I want to hear what you think. If you go to your podcast app, whatever podcast app you're using, because we're on Spotify and iTunes, all that good stuff, leave us a review. Maybe uh, tap on that five-star button. You know, go all the way to the right and tap on that. Tell us how we're doing. Leave us a review. We, we'd really love to hear from you. That's that's what we go on here. I'm offering this to you for free because I like to put this information out there. So until next time, stay safe out there in the tinderbox. box.